Quick disclaimer, this week's episode features some adult themes and language. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, and welcome to The Backlot. I'm Tova Leiter, moderator and director of the New York Film Academy guest lecture series. In this episode, we will take an in-depth look at one of my great guests and hear about her experience in the entertainment industry. And now, Eric Conner will take you through the highlights of this Q&A. Hi, I'm Eric Conner, Senior Instructor at New York Film Academy. And today we bring you a woman who's reinvented her career multiple times. Stephanie Elaine, the producer behind Black Snake Moan, Dear White People, and the Oscar-winning Hustle and Flow. Man ain't like a dog. And when I say man, I'm talking about man is in mankind, not man is in man. Dear White People, the minimum requirement of black friends needed to not seem racist has just been raised to two. The two types of people. Those that talk to talk and those that walk to walk. Sorry, but your weed man, Tyrone, does not count. Why is it that there's a gun shop on almost every corner in this community? Why? For the same reason that there's a liquor store on almost every corner in the black community. Why? They want us to kill ourselves. It ain't the size of the dog in the fight. It's the size of the fight, fight in the dog. dog. Miss Elaine's first love was writing though her life after school quickly put her on another path. I've always loved writing. I mean, that's actually how I got into this business, because I love stories. I mean, I can remember as a young girl reading The Godfather and then going to see it at the El Rey, you know, reading The Exorcist and going to the Wiltern to see the movie. I was really into the relationship between the page and the screen. So I studied English at school. That was, uh, that was my thing, with an emphasis in creative writing. Um, then, Life caught up to me pretty quickly because I got pregnant right out of school and sort of became less interested in my own creative pursuits. She was able to work her way up in the entertainment industry by reading a lot. I think my biggest education in this business has been my years as a, as a script reader. I started at CAA as a book reader. I got that job when I was with a newborn because it was something I could do with the baby. I could nurse and read. No, like this, you know. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, it's like the ultimate multitasking. So the, the process of reading educates you so much. You guys should be reading every single thing you can get your hands on. And not only just reading them, but writing your own coverage, just for yourself. You know, a, a paragraph of synopsis. First of all, this is what you do, log line. Make it real short and sweet, capture what it is. Then do a little paragraph synopsis and then a paragraph of comments and notes. That discipline, and I'm saying, I did it when we had typewriters. I'm so old, I can't believe it. I did it when we had typewriters at CAA. We would read the thing and then we'd go sit at the typewriter, put the paper in, and just start writing it. I mean, the only thing you had was like whiteout. You couldn't even go back. That was my education, really. And what happens is, you start to assimilate the form that works so that by page 10, if nothing's happening, you're like going, why isn't anything happening? Like your instinct just sort of kicks in, you know? At the end of the first act, you're like, well, how come they're not in the new world yet? You know what I'm saying? Like, why, how, how, why are we still at the same place where we've been at for the last half hour? I don't get it. You start to know what should be happening. And then you can sort of, when you have that form down, and then I've also done a lot of reading, which I totally recommend 
recommend for, you know, you have to read Sid Field. You have to read Linda Seeger. You have to read all of those books. You have to read Save the Cat. You know, you have to read all of them because they're all saying the same thing, number one. And number two, it's just a different way of saying it. So whatever way you key into, that's it. You know, story, Robert McKee, is so heady. I mean, I like to sort of just dream about it and then go, okay, that's too much for me. But those forms are your pillars, really. So first of all, you have to know all of the form, then you have to read a ton of stuff, and then you have to write synopses and, and log lines. And if you do that for a thousand scripts, you will be a master because you will understand form so well that you will pick up a script and you'll just know like so quickly whether this is a this is somebody who is taking you on a ride, somebody who's confidently telling you a story or not. And that's how I read. And also the writing of the log line is so important because it's actually teaching you how to pitch. It's actually teaching you yeah. how to synopsize, how to encapsulate, how to pull the the subject, the protagonist, how to pit that protagonist against an obstacle, and how to suggest a possible conclusion. And that's really, when you're in a room and you're pitching, that's what you're telling. This is a story about a woman who does this and faces all this and, you know, maybe or maybe doesn't do it. South Central Los Angeles, a place where drugs, crime, and violence rule the streets. Why is it that there's a gun shop on almost every corner in this community? Why? Yeah. For the same reason that there's a liquor store on almost every corner in the black community. Why? They want us to kill ourselves. We got a problem here? We got a problem here? Can we have one night where there ain't no fight, nobody gets shot? Mama's boy. Her career took a massive step forward when she discovered the script for Boys in the Hood, written by then 23-year-old John Singleton. When I found the script for Boys in the Hood, I had just been promoted out of the story department and my job was to read scripts. I was a CE and I had to go find material. This was so long ago that Warner Brothers and Columbia shared the lot right here. I'm very much dating yes. myself, but it yes. was a long time ago. And Dawn Steele was the yes. president. She hired me. I worked for her and Amy Pascal. At that point, Peter Goober and John Peters, they came in and they wanted yes. their own lot. So okay. they purchased that lot. They purchased the Thalberg building. And we were in the process of moving. Actually, I was looking to replace myself in the story department. And I heard about John. I was, of course, the only black person in the story department. I said, I have to replace myself with a person of color. John was at school. He was a reader. He came in for the job. And all he wants to talk about is the script he'd written, Boys in the Hood. So I eventually pried it from his grubby little hands and read it in my office and just wept. And I literally knew at that moment what I was there to do. I was there to get that movie made. And it was one of those epiphany kind of yeah. moments. But I knew that we were in the middle of a move. They were trying to make Ghostbusters 2. It was just like not at all on anybody's radar, this little movie about South Central. I went to school in Inglewood. I knew these kids. I related to this mm -hmm. script. And I, 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 I took it to every single executive one by one. And this is a good technique, too, producers. You have to circle your wagons. Like going into a group without talking to every single person before you talk to the group is a bad idea. Talk to every single person separately. 
tell them why this is important to you, why, why you're even bothering with it, why you're asking them to read something. It's a lot of time. It's a big commitment. So know why, number one, and then be able to articulate it because that's what I did. I went to every single executive separately and I said, do this for me. I had been reading all their scripts and giving them notes. I said, please read this for me. I'll tell you why it's important. I did that for every single person. So by the time we got to the other lot, everybody had read it. And everybody had promised me that they got it and they were going to support me. It was kind of crazy. Again, at the studio, I was the only executive of color. No, maybe Kevin Jones was there. But I could count them on one hand. And guess what? I can still count them on one hand. That is 20-some years later. And the reason that we had a run at Columbia of John Singleton and Robert Rodriguez and Darnell Martin is because I was at the table. I was the one saying, this is important to me. This is the movie we should make. This is why I want to make this movie. Because I, had, I related to it. I had sensitive eyes to the material. It wasn't that the other people were racist or bad or anything. They just didn't have the sensitivity to that material. They couldn't express to each other why it was passionately important to them, because it just wasn't. So basically, we turned to Frank Price, and Frank Price is a guy who really doesn't give up. He just says what he wants to say, yeah. and he was like, I think we should make it, right there. <laughs> and by this time, I was sweating. I was like, I was so betrayed. I was like, oh, my God. My heart was beating fast, you know. I was sitting there just holding myself back from arguing with them about it, you know, because yeah. you can't. You've got to put your stuff on the table, and everybody gets to throw their stuff at it, you know. But yeah, then he said he was going to do it, so I was happy. The beauty of boys was that they had to promote me to VP, which I jumped over director development right to VP because there was nobody to supervise it. <laughs> and you had to be a VP to supervise. So I got this huge raise. I got the VP. And I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know. And I had to fake it till I made it. That's how I did it. That's how I got through it. You know, you have to be reasonably smart and you have to watch and listen. But then you just have to kind of fake it. And then you learn just by doing it. I did know that I had to put John with a great producer. So I put him with Steve Nicolaitis, who had produced a lot of Rob Reiner's movies. And they loved each other right off. So then the studio was so busy, they literally didn't care. They were like, here's $5 million, knock yourself out. Wow. We got movies to make. So that's what we did. And I just sort of, as an executive, you know, executive is a very different job from producer, but I always knew I was more with the camp, with the, with the production. I sort of knew that, you know. So I stayed with them a lot. And then, uh, you know, we made this great movie very, very short amount of time. It was, everything happened so quickly. I think we started shooting in August, or prep in August, and, and by May we were on the carpet at camp. That's how crazy it was. And then we got a 20-minute standing ovation at the premiere in France, and that's when we sort of knew, wow, this is something. In 1991, Columbia Pictures introduced you to an extraordinary new filmmaker and an unforgettable new vision. The director was 23-year-old John Singleton. The film, Boys in the Hood. Now, Columbia Pictures is proud to present a remarkable new film from another extraordinary new talent. The director is 23-year-old Robert Rodriguez. The film, El Mariachi. The success of Boys in the Hood gave her autonomy at Columbia Pictures and the credibility to release a $7,000 movie, El Mariachi, directed by Robert Rodriguez. 
Now, since then, he has gone on to bigger projects, uh, Spy Kids, Sin City, and Once Upon a Time in Mexico. But at that time, he was just a young man willing to sell his own blood, literally, to finance his film. When I did Boys in the Hood, I was like a huge star after that because people were like, who is this girl? What is that movie? And that movie made $65 million off a $5 million budget. And, and John was nominated for two Oscars and it was all over the news. And unfortunately, people died in the theater the first weekend. You know, it was like, it was just this whole sort of perfect storm that happened, right? And because of it, I got totally left alone at the studio. They're like, well, whatever she's doing, she's doing it right. So just keep on doing it. You don't have to do less action hero anymore. And I was like, so grateful. So basically, I got a call from Robert Newman, who is still his agent. And he said, I have a movie for you to watch. So I pop it in at home. And we're eating dinner. And it's so good. I don't even have to, and I know a little Spanish, but it wasn't that. I just, just the visual storytelling was so good. So I was like, who is this guy? He was like, this dude, Robert. He does it all. He's a cartoonist. He's a that, that. I was like, okay. I got on a plane. This is very important, too. You got to go with artists. That means so much to them. They're like, she came all this way. It's okay. Um, and I got down there, and I met his mom, and I met his dad, and I met his 12 siblings, and I took him out for barbecue. <laughs> and, you know, I said, Let's do this. Come back to the studio. So he did, and we remade that movie. Well, actually, first we finished it because it wasn't even assembled, really, like the, the film. We made it. We added, like, a million dollars to it. This was a $7,000 movie that we added a million dollars to, and we released it. <laughs> and then he wanted to remake it because that was the deal. I said, come on back. We'll remake it. It'll be big. Everybody will see it. And then Peter Goober had the great idea to just like, no, this will be the $7,000 studio movie and we're gonna release it. So that's what we did. And then he basically wanted to do another movie. It was Dutch Prado, but there was no Mexican star. I'll just be honest. There was no Diego Luna. There was no Gael. There was only Antonio Banderas, who, by the way, is not Mexican. He's Spanish. And so, and he was like, no, it has to be Mexican. And I was like, dude, there's no Mexican. It has to be Antonio. <laughs> and so I brought Antonio to the studio. This is the good thing about being in the studio. The really cool thing is like, do whatever you want to do. It's like you just call people up and go, I'm calling from Columbia Pictures. And I'd like, <laughs> I'd like to, Mr. Banderas to come to the studio for a private screening of, you know. Yachi. And that's what happened. And I remember Antonio did not speak English. I was practicing a little bit of my Spanish. And I showed him the movie. He was really impressed. I don't know how. I basically, I think what happened is they said, dude, we're not making a movie unless you make it with Antonio. So Robert was sort of forced to do it. And then, of course, now they're muse and director. After the bullets and mayhem of El Mariachi, Miss Elaine went on to the greener pastures of Jim Henson Studios, the home of Kermit the Frog. You get it, greener? Because Kermit's green. I left the studio to go run Jim Henson Pictures. That was a disaster. I made... <laughs> Five movies, they were all disasters. My Muppet movie, if you ever see it, terrible. But it opens with Kermit singing Brick House, okay? So it's an aberration. Elmo and Grouchland was my other big movie. Um, I had kids running for the aisles during the uh, 
preview screenings. It was horrifying. <laughs> they were running, screaming, trying to get out of there. It was so bad that we ended up putting Bert and Ernie in the movie, freezing the movie, and going, don't worry, kids. Everything's going to be OK. <laughs> wait, wait, stop the film, stop the film. Ernie, Ernie. Oh, what's the matter, Bert? What's happening to Elmo? Oh, don't worry, Bert. That's just the way to get to Grouchland. Ow. Roll oh. I hired Mandy Patinkin to be a bad guy. It was it was a total disaster. <laughs> and then, you know, to make matters worse, I fell in love with my boss and got fired. I mean, it, it could not have been worse. Miss Elaine left Jim Henson Studios and made the bold move to start her own production company. Then I got off the wheel. Then I was out of the rat race of Hollywood. Because, you know, once you're in it, you are in it. And you've got to keep up. There's too much information coming that you have to know about. You have to read the trades. You have to read the scripts. You have to see the movies. It's a full-time job, you know? So I got out. And I was 40 years old. I had a 16-year-old son, uh, a 6-year-old son. I was divorced by that time, and living on my own, this fabulous house in Hancock Park, and going, what is going on? So then I just started doing what I did before. I started dancing. Uh, I was a dancer. I went to uh, CalArts grad school for dance. Uh, I was a writer, so I started writing. So I wrote, I danced every day. Oh my god, I was in great shape. (laughs) My son (laughs) was 16. He, He fancied himself, you know, a dancer, but I was like, you're no dancer. (laughs) <laughs> You're no dancer until you can look at that combo and do it right then on the spot. And I made dinner. I was such a good mom. I was so good. And then I got really bored. And I was like, okay, now what? What am I going to do? And then Erwin Stoff called me and said, do you want to work at Three Arts? And I was like, sure. That didn't last either because I'm not like a management agent type. It's like all my days, I've been hearing this, this beat. In my head, my heavy percussion, repetitive hooks, mm-hmm. sexually suggestive lyrics, man, it's all blues, brother. It ain't the size of the dog in the fight. It's the size of the fight in the dog. dog. We do what the fuck we gotta do, man. By any means. Ain't that right? We take care of our shit. You think I like this shit? You think I wanna spend the rest of my life pimping your pimple country ass? Whoop that trick! Get him! Whoop that trick! When she came across the script for Hustle and Flow, she immediately knew it had to be made. But despite being a script that excited pretty much everyone who read it, Hustle and Flow still had a long, arduous road to the screen. I found that script and I thought, this is what I want to do. My contract was done. And I said, yeah, I don't want to do that. I'm just going to figure out how to make this movie. And then that turned into four years of like peddling it around town. And I just, I woke up one day and I was like, I don't need the house. It's holding me back. You know, I have to pay this mortgage. I've got kids going to NYU by this time. I was like, I can't do it. I'm single. Ugh, it was was a hard, hard time. And I just called my broker and I said, sell the house. Now this was a really bad idea because it was when the house prices were just starting to really take off. But I had to divest. I knew it. I had to get rid of it. It sold in like two seconds. 
I didn't even have a place to live. That's how fast it sold. So I went backwards. I went back to Park La Brea. You know oh, what I mean? Gosh. It was like, oh, but coming. the freedom, because what it enabled me to do, so I did make money on the house. I mean, I'm not dumb. I did make some money on the house, and I said, I'm going to take 250 of it and, and make this movie. That was my plan. I was tired of waiting for yes. Nobody wanted to give me yes. And I wanted yes, so I had to make yes. So I took the money, I called my friend John, and I said, look, I got the hottest script in town. You gotta read it. And he was like, okay, okay, okay. I gave it to him, months went by. I was like, oh, Jesus, what am I doing? I'm sitting in Park La Brea. <laughs> I got this bank account, but no job, nothing to do. And then he calls me, I remember, it was Cinco de Mayo. He was on the set of Fast and the Furious, the, the version he did. And he said, this shit is great! <laughs> and I was like, isn't it great? Have you finished it? He's like, no, no, no. I haven't finished it, but it's great. And that, it was the kind of script when you started reading it, you just yeah. got so excited that yes. you were just like, I'm in the, in the midst of greatness. And then um, I said, well, finish it and then call me. So then he, no, he goes, come down here. You have to come down here. So I went down the Universal soundstage. Everybody had margaritas. And um, we just, and I just said, look, here's what we have to do. We have to make it ourselves, and it's going to be great. And he was like, no, no, no. I'm making Fast and the Furious. It's going to make all this money. Don't worry. We got this. We got this. And, and, and that's when we peddled it back around. I must have gone to everybody five times before I showed it in Sundance. And um, <laughs> he finally just wrote the check. Though Hustle and Flow eventually earned him an Oscar nomination, Terrence Howard was initially reluctant to sign up for the part that would change his career. At the time, Terrence was sort of known as Q from The Best Man. <laughs> that was the most impactful role that he'd done. And then he'd done a lot of little things, but never really had his moment. And when we went to him, we said to him, is this all, is this all there is? Like, what do you see for yourself, yeah. you know? You have to have a dream. I mean, this was really, really true. That's right. And he fought us for a really long time because, number one, he did not like rap. He did not want to rap. Since it took us so long to get it done, he wrote an album. He wanted to be a folk singer. <laughs> so he wrote an album, and he is a beautiful guitar player, classical guitar player and singer. It was the saddest thing I remember Sometime in August in the course And I don't think he really wanted to be the pimp, you know? I don't think any respecting black man wants to be the pimp, but, uh, but he You know, when I did Glory with Denzel Washington, mm -hmm. he didn't want to play a he slave. He didn't want to play a slave, right. And it brought him an Oscar, and it brought him... Yeah. Now, that's a whole nother conversation, because that's very interesting, just in that statement, that Playing a pimp and playing a slave is what brought them their Oscar. I don't even know what to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I got a lot of flack for the pimps and hoes from black women in Hollywood. Well, there's not that many black women, but the five black women in Hollywood <laughs> gave me tons of shit. But the reason I wanted to make that movie is because I really, truly believe that if a pimp can be elevated through art, then we all can. Many in the industry questioned if writer-director Craig Brewer was the right choice to capture the film's reality. I think that I did get a little blowback on that. Um, and I will say that it's very important to me that the author of 
the story is authentic to the story. I'm very suspect of a white gaze going on to black story, black bodies. Not that it can't be done, but I definitely will double take. But I flew down to Memphis to meet Craig and hang out with him, and he was the real deal. You know, this was not his neighborhood, so to speak, but these were his people. It was just a very diverse crowd that he hung with. He knew 3-6, he knew Juicy J. It got to me because he made a movie before this. The movie before this was The Poor and Hungry. And The Poor and Hungry played a lot of festivals. And off of the, that movie, he got an agent. And that agent knew me. And so the agent read the script, called me up, and said, I want you to read the script and watch the movie. I did the same thing John did. I, I was like halfway in. I called him. I was like, I love this. <laughs> he said, well, have you finished? I said, no. He said, OK, finish. <laughs> so I finished. Uh, because, you know, it's, it's not a, oh, and it all works out. I mean, it does work out, but it's, it's, a, it's a darker ending. And I felt that his compassion for those characters was very real. He lived a, a bit of a marginal life uh, as he was trying to make this movie. I mean, this movie is actually a sort of an incarnation of how they got the money together to make his movie. But yeah, Craig's a real deal, and I would always check that out. I'm not going to say that you have to be black to direct a black movie, because I don't think you have to be white to direct a white movie. You know? so, but I do make sure that it's, it's an authentic voice. And by that, I mean somebody who's very sensitive to the characters in the story. As a producer, Miss Elaine is particularly drawn to the passion that writer-directors bring to the table. I really am attracted to writer-directors because one thing I learned at the studio is that those movies are made by a committee. And that's why they don't seem that good, you know? And that the movies that were made by one vision, by one voice, they may be flawed, but they were so much more interesting to me. They, I felt the humanity in them. And John really taught me this, because when he showed up, I tried to do the studio on him. I was like, we've got to change this, you know? Cops don't eat donuts and, you know, this whole thing. And he was like, I will strangle you if you touch anything in this movie. And I was like, ooh, okay. And then I basically, he sort of indoctrinated me into being a writer-director's producer, which is to protect the vision. And you either have to buy into it or you don't. You can challenge for sure, but it has to be challenged coming from a buy-in, you know? So it always starts with the script for me. I got to read a piece of material that makes me laugh or cry or, or scared or something. You know, and if it moves me, and it's always my gut, I literally know my heart starts beating fast. I, it's like love. I'm like, oh, oh my God, this is so good. That's how I feel. And if I feel that way, I know I can go the distance on it. As a producer, you should right. not take anything on that you're just okay about because you think it's a good piece of business or because you think it'd be good to attract some actor or something. Mm -hmm. It will never happen. Yes. The only thing that can literally create something out of nothing, which is what you're doing in a movie. You're taking, you're taking ideas that are crystallized as a blueprint, really, on a page, and then getting everybody to sort of have this mind meld on it. It's crazy. 
and, and it's really difficult to do it well because there's no science to it. So you have to find material that you can stick with forever because sometimes that's how long it takes. You know, you have to find something that means something to you. And so when I read something that someone else has poured their heart into, I respond and then I meet the person and then I see if that person, how that person is with me. You know, if that person makes me want to go knock down doors to make it happen, then, then I take it on. If that person irks me or feels entitled or doesn't feel like there's room to grow, you know, the writer-directors that I, and I've, I've done a lot of first-time writer-directors, and it, it's super fun because they don't know anything, and they're so, like, the dream is so big, you know? And I love that beginner's mind because it's just malleable but focused. So I look for that. That's what I look for. I look for something that turns me on, and then I meet the person and see if it's embodied in that person because you have to spend a lot of time with these people. And you have to ask for money, and you have to ask for favors. You have to stand in the middle of the night at 4 in the morning. It's cold or it's hot or whatever. It's a relationship, you know? So I just look for the good material and then the cool people that wrote it. When asked about developing more material from minority filmmakers, Miss Elaine reminded our students to support the art they want to see created. So here's the thing. The one thing that will create momentum is if we patronize our own stuff. Because that's the first step, is to really be proficient on what is out there that African-American producers, writers, directors, actors are doing. Look, I'm a producer, which means I'm an optimist. I just see that the world is changing. I know that the census is telling us that more brown babies are born every day than white babies. That's the reality, you know? There's got to be entertainment for all these folks coming, you know? <laughs> I, I'm sitting in the catbird seat now, you know? So I think that, yeah, just do your thing, you know? I mean, what is the story that you want to tell? That's what you got to do. Just find the story that you are uniquely qualified to tell. Instead of pursuing movies that she thinks the marketplace wants, Miss Elaine prefers to follow her own sensibilities. When I say trust your gut, I trust that as a human being, I respond to emotions. So I know if a piece of material is triggering my emotions, that I'm going to guess if I can produce the best version of that material that it's going to strike a lot of other people's emotions. I don't look for things that I think other people are going to want. I look for things that I'm going to want. That's the only gut I got. I think trying to second guess the marketplace or, or do things that the masses will want never work out. Never work out for you. you got to just bring your own to it. And the way to do that is to really think about who you are. I think so much, you know, we're so distracted. I mean, oh, it is just so, so upsetting. You know, I love my iPhone, I love my MacBook, but God, I should throw them as far away as possible. <laughs> you know, it's created this uh, alone togetherness, right? Yeah. People don't just sit alone without their phones, you know? They gotta have it, it's crazy. And so if you sat alone without your phone and you remembered who you were at eight years old, who you were intrinsically, not who you were trying to be, 
but what do you know about yourself? Like, I knew when I was really young that I was smart. I just knew it. That was the truth about me. What do you know about yourself at that age before you sort of grew into who you are now? And if you can remember who you were, who you are, and you bring that to everything you do, there will be an authenticity to you that will be irresistible. People will just be like, God, I don't know what it is, but I really like her. And you will be attracting the kind of people that you're connecting with. Because if you're being authentic, people are gonna be like, oh, you're not my people. Or they're gonna be like, you're my people. It's gonna be really clear. But if you're sort of hiding behind something else, then you, the other people's doing that, then you never really get clarity. So what you guys can all do is to bring to the situation who you really are, unabashedly, even if it's, if it's, if it's like some people you just know, like you give away stuff, you're just generous. That's who you are intrinsically. Then be that, then practice that. It's the quickest way, I think, to attain what you want and to be enlightened to the fact that we're just all here for such a short time and we get caught up in so much negativity that it prevents us from really achieving all, all that we can achieve, all that we dream and that we want. Despite what must be nonstop work as a producer, Miss Elaine still finds time to lead organizations focused on discovering new talent. You know, I also run the LA Film Festival and uh, my goal is to make it the most diverse mainstream festival in the world. And I think I can do that here in LA. And it's also the exhibition arm of Film Independent. Film Independent is the 30-year-old arts organization that really supports artists who are diverse and innovative and have a unique point of view. And we also produce the Spirit Awards, the Film Festival, Film Independent at LACMA, and a host of programs throughout the year. So if you don't know about it, you should know. If, you don't, if you're not a member, you should become a member. You get all the movies that are nominated for Spirit Awards in your mailbox. It's like a precursor to when you're in the Academy and you get all the stuff, but you get your own little section at this level and it's great. Stephanie Elaine recommends that any producer looking to develop material should literally put themselves in the writer's shoes. I don't care if you're a screenwriter or not, write one script. Just write one script. You can come up with an idea and you can force yourself to sit in that seat until you have 110 pages. And that exercise will blow your mind because, first of all, it will give you incredible empathy for any single writer. <laughs> and second of all, it will give you incredible confidence as a writer because guess what? We all write. This is a skill that we all have. Some people just exercise it more than others. Thank you to Stephanie Elaine for speaking to our students and to all of you for listening. This episode was written by me, Eric Connor, based on the guest speaker series produced and moderated by Tova Leiter. The episode was edited and mixed by Christian Hayden, produced by David Andrew Nelson, Christian Hayden, and myself. Executive produced by Jean Sherlock, Dan Mackler, and Tova Leiter. Associate produced by Vinny Sisson. A special thanks to Lydia Cedrone for co-moderating, and to Ariel Seagard, Robert Cosnahan, Saja Johnson, and the entire staff and crew who made this possible. To learn more about our programs, check us out at nyfa.edu. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. See you next time.
And remember, it's hard out here for a pimp.